Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Malcolm Bach, who is an Alexander Technique teacher in Montreal, Quebec. He also teaches at Plattsburgh State University in upstate New York, and he's been a teacher of the Alexander Technique for over 25 years. About 20 years ago, he developed the Art of Running Workshop which has uh, had quite a bit of popularity around the world. He is the co-author of Master the Art of Running and a second book, Master the Art of Working Out. And in this uh, talk, we're going to discuss the question of how the Alexander Technique can be useful for runners. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be here, Rob. Malcolm, could you begin by just uh, providing a very short uh, description or definition of the Alexander Technique? Sure. Um, I think we could say that the Alexander Technique is, is a method that helps people do things with less unnecessary tension and, and encourages more freedom of movement. That's good. I like that. That gets right to, and I think that leads right into my next question, which is, what does the technique have to offer for runners? Well, um, it's interesting you ask that because the uh, the Alexander technique, I think, was was first developed with you know a view to helping um, actors, really, um, because the, the man who developed it was an actor, um, and then later um, was used with people who had you know different things like back problems or shoulder problems, and um, I started. Um, I got interested in it myself through music. I, I started playing the cello um, again in my 20s, and I had a lot of tension left over from my hockey playing years. And um, my teacher suggested I, I should take some Alexander lessons to kind of try to free up my shoulders so I could play the cello with a little bit more facility. This led to my eventually deciding I'd like to train as a teacher. And it was at that point when I moved to London to train in the early 80s with uh, Patrick McDonald that, um, you know, that I, you know, I started to notice gradually an effect of the Alexander Technique on my running because I was a runner at that time. I'd run five marathons. I'd, um, I decided to step down to the shorter distances of the 800 and the 1500. So I was training pretty seriously. And like a lot of runners, I'd had a, a, a history of, of injuries. You know, as a marathoner, if I ever tried to go beyond a certain mileage point in, in a week, I always either got injured or sick. And that continued for, for years. And, um, you know, in spite of trying different kinds of shoes and, you know, stretching and strengthening. And, you know, I was a fairly young guy at the time in my 20s. Um, you know, uh, I kept getting injured. And... One of the things I discovered uh, once I started training is that even though I was doing a couple of track workouts on the weekend, spikes and, you know, fairly high intensity stuff, that I wasn't getting injured anymore. And, you know, the funny thing was when I checked my training diary 10 years later, you know, how obsessive we are, we runners are about logging every every mile, every kilometer that we've run, I noticed that there weren't any, you know, red Marks in there uh, off for a week with Achilles tendonitis, or geez, couldn't train this week because of my knee. You know, there was none of that, and um, 
I started, I looked back and I, and I said, well, what, what's made the difference? And, and I realized it, there was nothing specific about my running. I hadn't changed my running technique much in those days. I wasn't doing, you know, taking magic vitamins or any other kind of pills. Um, but what I developed through the Alexander training is what I might call a kinesthetic conscience. In other words, I was, I was more connected to the how I was running in the moment. And I would notice how hard, for example, my feet were hitting the ground or whether or not my shoulders were tight or how I was breathing when I was running or what my head was doing or how free my arms were moving. Um, even though I don't think my technique was at the same level it is today because um, I've done a lot of work on that side of it, I was much more aware of how I was doing things and I developed a sense of being able to back off before I push things beyond that little niggle level into the injury level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we mm -hmm. often talk about, you know, learning to hear the whispers so that you don't have to listen to the screams. <laughs> oh, that's good. Is that a running saying? Or is no, that... I don't know where I got that, you but made... I thought it was yeah. good. <laughs> I like that. It, it, yeah, it just sort of stuck with me. And, and I remember before, Alexander, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, some other runners out there, you know, if I got a little niggle, I just sort of trained through it or, you know, um, sometimes it even pushed through it. And all of a sudden that niggle was, a, was an injury, you know, and it required taking days off or even longer. Whereas with the Alexander, I could back off and maybe I might have got a little bit less out of that run. But in the big picture, I was, I was making terrific strides and improving and setting personal bests and, and, um, enjoy, and actually enjoying running more. That's another thing that uh, before I'd done Alexander, I, it was always, you know, I guess I was functioning from the school of more is more, you know, more mileage, more speed, more, more, more would give me more. And in fact, ironically, it was getting to the point where I was caught up in that sort of law of diminishing returns. The more I put in, the less I seem to be getting back. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that the Alexander Technique, uh, you know, talks about a lot is that less is more. It has to be the right kind of less, but the right kind of less can actually give you more at the end of the day. And um, so uh, I, I tried to bring that principle into my into my running, into, into my training, where... Um, you know, if eight was good enough, uh, there wasn't any need to do 12 reps of a, of a particular, you know, in a, in a particular training session. And if I could achieve my goals on, you know, 40 miles a week, well, you know, I wasn't, I didn't need to go to 60 anymore. I was achieving what I was capable of doing with less. Mm -hmm. And, um, in, you know, in sports and in, in a lot of areas, that's not the kind of thinking that we see. We see a different kind. You know, we get see thinking that, oh, geez, well, if I do a three-hour marathon on 40 miles a week, if I do 80 miles a week, maybe I'll run 240 or 230. And that could be true for some people. But uh, for a lot of the other people, as they try to crank up the mileage and you know, all the rest of it, they get into the injury zone or they find that they're investing so much in, in their running, they're not going to be Olympians, that they're not getting back what they're, you know, uh, they're not getting a good return on their investment, you know. It's... Right, right. I, I mean, I think uh, I'm I'm not a runner myself, but I I am a, a fairly frequent observer of runners and joggers. Yeah. And what and I I I read a lot of stuff that is written for runners and fitness people engaged in fitness programs, and it does seem as though in general 
there's a kind of an emphasis on quantity as opposed to quality yeah. in these yeah. activities. And I guess uh, looking at it a bit from the outside, I, I would say maybe a, a runner would do well to consider exactly why they're running. And, and if, if it's for aerobic purposes, uh, as you say, maybe a little less or a little more efficient running will, would get you the aerobics or this, whatever the other benefits are without uh, so much likelihood of harming yourself and being laid up for weeks at a time. Or, well, yeah, I mean, I see yeah. a lot of, I have a, have had runners as students who've, who've had pretty serious injuries, knee injuries and the like, uh, from running. So clearly yeah. that's not something you want to get if you're a runner. Exactly. If you get injured, you don't improve. It's that simple. So, you know, sometimes it pays to train a, train a little bit less hard and keep training <laughs> um, and maybe it progress a little bit more slowly, but you're still progressing. When you're mm-hmm. injured, you not only go down, but then you have to climb out of that valley of injury and try to, you know, and that sometimes sets up kind of fear of, you know, re-injury or, you know, you come back, you try to, you try to come back too fast and too hard and you're... The other thing, too, is that um, sometimes you can do more. Like, I've experimented with running uh, more mileage. And, in fact, in my 50s, I was able to sort of run 100 kilometers a week, which I was never able to do in my 20s or in my 30s. And um, and I figured, you know, I finally realized after all these years that, um, geez, if you if you try to increase the quantity that you do and maintain the quality at the same time, in other words, if you try to run 100 kilometers a week and you're trying to average – you know, let's say your average is five minutes a K, you know, um, at 60 and you try to, you, you know, average five minutes a K at 100, you're liable to get injured. So I started using uh, the heart rate monitor a little bit later on saying, OK, if I keep my heart rate down under, I think the magic number they talk about these days for, for easy aerobic running is somewhere around 70 to 75 percent of your maximum heart rate. Now, for a lot of us, you know, when you run at 70 or 75 percent, it doesn't even feel like running. It feels like walking. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and you feel like you're a bit of a wussy out there. Anyway, I tried it as an experiment, and I was able to run 100 kilometers a week. I went from 40 kilometers a week to 100 kilometers a week overnight, which goes against the principle of, of don't increase more than 10% a week. But I did it at a very easy pace where I had plenty of time to pay attention to how I was running, notice any little niggles, any little aches or pains. Um, if I've got something and I needed to walk, I just walked. I mean, I, I felt like I wasn't running much faster than a walk. But the funny thing was at the end of um, a six-week period of, of training at this uh, very easy pace, which I think Arthur Lydiard used to espouse, um, I was actually quite a lot faster at higher at higher thresholds, you know, at 80%, at 85%, at 90% of my maximum heart rate. I was actually running faster right up the chain. And it, it involved a great deal of what we, we, we would uh, call in the Alexander world inhibition, which is uh, simply means um, not reacting to your first impulse, you know. Uh, it, you know, and the impulse when you're running, of course, is always, especially if you're competitive, is to go hard. And um, I kept having to hold myself back, hold myself back. It's, it's what a good marathoner has to do, in fact, to run well, is to hold back over the first 20 miles. As we all know, the race starts at 20 miles. And if you go fast in the first six, you tend not to go too fast in the last. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of bitter experiences out there, my own included, <laughs> about uh, you know running a marathon way too fast in the first 
you know, 10 kilometers and paying a miserable price for it in the last 10. Anyway, I used that in my training and I was able to achieve more in my, you know, at the age of 54 than I could achieve at the age of 24, which is, you know, I, I always treat myself as a bit of an experiment. So I started advocating that a little bit in my workshops that people should try the old long, slow distance sometimes, but do it intelligently, do it with good form. Um, maybe we could say something about the Alexander, Alexander technique and form and, and use a lot of, of, of inhibition, a lot of that kind of patience and, um, and, and restraint and see where it gets you. And everybody comes back and after the first week and they're whining and they're moaning and they're saying, oh, God, this is awful. I can't run this slow and then and then and then. And I consistently get feedback six weeks later or eight weeks later when they run their race. Oh, I ran that race for the first time without injury. I was four minutes faster. I I enjoyed the race. Uh, the payoffs are enormous, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but so it goes- it's a, it's an example. Uh, it sounds like it's an example of reaching your goal, which I assume in these cases would be longer runs, faster speeds, but reaching it by not trying to get to the goal directly, which is sort of the, or the obvious way but to use some intelligence to kind of sneak around the problems and get to, get to the goal more successfully in an indirect way, which, yeah. of course, is very, very much in line with, with basic Alexander Technique ideas. I wonder, I, I'd like to talk in a moment about your workshops, but before we do that, I'd uh, I'd like to ask you what would ha- what happens if a a student comes to you who wants some Alexander help with their running among among perhaps other things how would you actually work with an individual student what sort of things would you show them that they might not be able to get in other ways than say the Alexander technique or putting another way, what's unique, what's unique about the Alexander approach to something like running? Well, that's a good question. And and I'm always, you know, the more you, you do something, the more you think, less you think, you know, and I'm starting to feel that way, even though I've been teaching now for over 25 years and applying the Alexander technique to running for, for the same amount of time. So we're now in the 30, up to 30 years. I feel like I know less and less every day. And I'm always shocked and pleasantly surprised when I suggest something to somebody and they go, oh my God, that's, that changes <laughs> everything I've been doing. So I'll give you a simple example. Um, runners oftentimes are not really thinking about anything except their legs when they're running. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, you know, right. The, the running doesn't get much above the uh, the hip joint, you know, or the waist, depending on where they think their hip joint is. So when I tell them that uh, when you're running, you know, there's an there's an external direction which is sort of more horizontal, you know, that, that the direction that you're going. Okay, so that's sort of towards the target. Right, say. right. And then there's there's also an internal direction, which is the direction in which your spine is pointing. And you need to maintain both. And and they go, what does that mean? And I say, well, look, your head leads your spine. So if you actually think about your aiming yourself upwards, you know, so that you're getting a little bit of upward direction in your body as opposed to just forward direction in your body, you run 
lighter, you run taller. And running coaches are always harping about running tall. You know, every every school of running that you you, you come across always says, listen, you've got to run with a like a, a long spine, a neutral spine, a, you know, run tall. They say it in different ways. The Alexander Technique is extremely efficient and successful at actually getting people to lengthen their bodies, to lengthen their spines in a way which doesn't create a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the problems with a lot of approaches out there is that they create side effects. So you get people tucking the pelvis under and that creates, you know, the back gets pulled back at that point. And then you got to kind of tighten up your stomach to keep your back from pulling back. And then you can't breathe very well. But they'll say, well, look how tall he looks. Right. <laughs> But it hasn't increased their freedom at all. In fact, they feel tight when they run. And um, unless you're extremely motivated, you're not going to maintain that. Whereas the way that we achieve length in in the body is is a much freer, more natural way. And it's therefore easier to maintain for, for most runners. And it, it, the benefits in terms of breathing, uh, the quality of their stride, the freedom of movement of their arms, the poise of the head are all there for everyone. And also the, the increases in performance are all there for everyone to, to sort of see and enjoy. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a really good point, especially you're mentioning the head, neck, and upper torso, which I guess you could say if, uh, physically are as far away from your legs as you can get in your body. And it it could be very easy for a runner to ignore them, but I I guess I would say at their peril because they that's where the internal organization of the body usually stems from the quality of the head neck upper torso uh, relationship because yes. you know your head weighs ten to twelve pounds and there it is way up at the top of your spine. So how you manage that's going to affect how you do anything, in, including running. And I guess it might be interesting uh, to, to for a runner or anyone interested in this to, if they can, just observe uh, what happens to people, say, between the time they're just standing, perhaps just standing and talking to you, and then if they go into a run or a jog, watch their heads and necks and upper torsos, and it's quite likely you're going to see a lot of extra tension up there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's subtle, subtle sometimes, uh, but, um, you know, definitely you can see changes up there and that, uh, that make a difference. Just a sec here. Um, yeah, that's kind of subtle to, uh, for most people to feel. Uh, but here's what they do feel. Okay. When, when you, um, as we often do in the Alexander Technique, when you um, walk with somebody, and I always start with walking in the workshops, I just I put a hand on the, on the head-neck connection. And I'll walk, I'll say, just walk forward with me, and, and but maintain this idea that your spine is sort of pointing upwards. And, and don't be too precise about this. And they start to walk forwards, and then I'll let them go. And so the sense, the, the felt sense in their bodies is that there's an up as well as going, as, a, as well as a forward. And they go, oh my goodness, that's really different. My feet are not hitting the ground as hard as they were before. 
Exactly. Yeah. Now they haven't yeah. lost any weight, unfortunately, right. <laughs> for some in that process. But they, what they've what what's happened is that when their thinking organizes, you know, the the energy in the body follows your thought, and when they've got that thought of not just sort of running towards the target, but running w with a little bit of idea that there's a direction in the body that goes up towards the head, when they have that there, um, it, they become what we call live weight. They're not dead weight anymore. They're live weight. It's like the difference between a little kid that you're carrying up the stairs who's asleep and a kind of dead weight in your arms and that same kid who wants to jump up and have a little snuggle. The weight on the scale doesn't change, but the quality of it, the feeling of it is very different. And we know with runners that they um, – you know, that we tend to land anywhere from between three and ten or more times body weight on every landing. Okay, mm -hmm. every time your right. foot comes down, it's, you know, three to ten times body weight. Well, you've got to decide yourself, which end of the spectrum do you want to be on? The three end or the ten end? <laughs> and when you make yourself dead weight and your feet are kind of, you know, driving down what I call excavating into the ground, right. you know, this is creating a scenario where you're getting shock coming up into the body. You better hope the good Lord has given you some very good connective tissue because, baby, you're paying a price for that, you know. And, and I think that brings us into the idea of this whole you know, thing these days with the barefoot running. And one of the things that running in barefoot with minimum, you know, amount on your feet does is that you, you, you're not, the, the shoes are not doing the work of absorbing the shock anymore. You're actually feeling a little bit more what's going on underneath your feet. Well, I don't need to wear bare, I don't need to run in bare feet and I don't need to run in, in minimal shoes. Through my Alexander training and awareness, I can feel and I can hear what my feet are doing on the ground. I can sense when I'm excavating, and I know how, and I can teach, and I teach people how to think so that they stop doing that, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and I think that that makes, I mean, I remember one chap in a workshop, I could hear his feet hitting the ground. He was 30 meters in front of me, and I ran up beside him. I said, you know, you might want to just think about running a little bit lighter or quieter, and he says, oh, this is much better than what I used to do. I mean, I remember I was running in a half marathon, and I slowed down, so I started pounding into the ground to pick up my, my speed, and I pounded myself into a stress fracture. Well, I didn't notice a whole lot of, you know, I don't, didn't see him before, but he was already, you know, still pounding pretty heavily, and I don't think he was all that aware of it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems, of course, for runners like anybody else, is that we're not aware of our habits. We all have our own particular, peculiar ways of running. Some of them uh, work for us. Some of them work against us. Um, you know, coaches are always trying to correct people's form a little bit, trying to get people to run a little bit smoother, a little bit easier, a little bit taller. Um, sometimes we think, you know, runners think that they're actually doing what the coach has asked them to do. More often than not, they're not, and mm -hmm. they don't know it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the Alexander Technique helps people do is to sort of know what's going on a little bit more accurately, know what kind of habits that, 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 that they bring to the running. A very good one, of course, is, you know, I tell runners often, you run like you sit. So just for those of you who are listening to this right now, just become aware of how you're actually sitting, if you are sitting while you're listening to this. Are you lengthening or are you sort of collapsing in the chair? You know, is your energy kind of going up or do you feel like it's 5.30 on Friday, <laughs> right? And, and that kind of energy in your body and that kind of organization and coordination in your body is what you bring out there when you run. So and, I, I, I assume that on, on the workshops you teach, um, you you get your you get 
the, the people attending to it. You give them some Alexander information. You get them to do some simple experiments to see how perhaps different ways of thinking about themselves affects how they run. Is that be that be accurate? Yeah. Well, I try to help them make a link bet- uh, between the everyday and, and the what running. they do when they yeah. run. Because so because say, you're going to take collapse, yeah. you you breathe poorly when you're sitting at your computer or in your right. car or you know watching the television. Okay, those habits, that lack of tone in your body, it, you know, um, you know, going to the gym a couple times a week and you know doing your sit-ups isn't doesn't really mitigate the effects of eight hours a day or more of sitting in a collapsed, pulled-in, tight, you know, flaccid kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it you know so good running oftentimes starts with being a little bit more conscious of how you're organizing and balancing yourself when you're driving your car or you know mm-hmm. watching mm-hmm. watching the World Cup mm-hmm. right in the middle mm-hmm. of the World Cup now so I might as well mention that mm-hmm. go England go <laughs> right so I mean I guess um, I, I guess I would add just from my own experience in working with runners usually just uh, on the sidewalk in front of my house just you know very. Uh, just a bit of jogging or running that some a lot of runners do are are closer to that 10 in that 3 to 10 scale you talked yeah. about before so they're doing a tremendous amount of extra work yeah and with just a little bit of uh alexander direction um little little lightning in an upward direction i guess you could put it yeah um it might take it from a 10 down to an 8 which which still wouldn't be great but it's pretty easy to notice a lot of yeah. times both for the teacher and the student absolutely and then of course yeah. over time with a bit of practice you could you could get close to the to the 3 yeah um you I can th- make a change like that fairly quickly and very more dramatically quickly, than yes. 10 to 8 you can sometimes go from 10 to about you know, if you ask them to self-rate, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you now? Oh, that's about a 10. And then you get them just to sort of think up a little bit and, you know, have their head be sort of better balanced on top of the spine. And they often say, well, that's about a 4 now, you know. Uh, very, you know, that can happen in about 30 seconds. Exactly. It can, it's amazing how fast that can happen. Now, of yeah. course, over it, it doesn't mean that you just come for one lesson probably and everything's going to be fine. But you can see the direction that you could start moving in if you're a yes. pretty quickly. It's not it's not going to be a subtle thing as it often is with students who, who don't do an activity like running it where the changes are more gradual and perhaps less easy to to notice. Yeah. I'm thinking that we may have uh kind of uh just time wise reached a point where it would be useful to to bring the interview to an end. Is is there anything, any kind of final thought you'd like to share with our listeners before we before we uh leave? Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I feel like we're just getting started because, you know, I always feel like when I do talk to people, I've got nothing to say. And then after I've talked for a little bit, I realize, oh, my God, there's another book that could come out here. But uh, maybe we could do a, a part two one of these days if there's a, an interest. I mean, one of the areas that I'd like to talk more about is the whole idea of um, – you know, the schools of running that are out there these days, there's the Chi School and there's the Poe School and there's, uh, you know, um, different schools out there, different schools out there these days. And just talk a little bit about how, you know, the approach that I've developed with uh, 
know, using the Alexander technique, kind of, you know, perhaps the, the links between them and how mechanics are an important factor in running and that we need to, uh, you know, we need to pay a little bit of attention to that. And, and that can happen, I think, fairly easily, perhaps in a much less complicated way than a lot of the other schools are teaching it these days. And at least that's what I've tried to get across in my workshops, I think, with some success. Okay, we could. That could be an interview for for down the road. A little more, a detailed look at various running uh, styles. I guess it would be right or approaches to running. So, yeah. Um, my uh, my guest today has been Malcolm Bach, an Alexander teacher in in Montreal, uh, Quebec, who is also the co-author of the Master the Art of Running and Master the Art of Working Out and for many years has been teaching Art of Running workshops around the world. If anything, if you live in Montreal and you're a runner, definitely give them a, give them a call. And if you are interested, in, if what we've been talking about grabs your interest, um, you might want to, to sign up for one of his workshops. And more generally, uh, if you... Uh, if the ideas we've been talking about appeal to you, you might want to find an Alexander teacher in your area because even without a specialized running program, an Alexander teacher, even one who doesn't run, like myself, can probably help help your running quite a bit. Here, here. So, so I think on that on that note, we'll end. Malcolm, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been my pleasure.